You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Portraits of Blue and Gray, the Biographical Civil War Podcast. Episode 2, U.S. Grant, Part 4. It was less than a week after the already mythologized surrender at Appomattox, April 14, 1865. Washington, D.C. was still celebrating. There were fireworks, parties, cigars being handed out, and shouts of joy throughout the city. Mary Lincoln wanted to spend the celebratory evening at the theater, and she hoped that she and her husband would be accompanied by the toast of the town, victorious General Ulysses Grant, and his wife, Julia. Mrs. Lincoln sent a messenger to Mrs. Grant extending the invitation. But Julia took offense at the messenger's tone, which she interpreted as more of an order than a request. And Mrs. Lincoln's erratic behavior and occasional public meltdowns made Julia uncomfortable. But more importantly, she wanted to get to New Jersey, with Ulysses in tow, to see their children. It had been quite some time since the entire family had been together. And so she convinced Mr. Grant to politely decline the President and First Lady's offer. And this gives you an idea of just how far Grant had come. Just four years earlier, he couldn't get the higher-ups in the military to give him the time of day. Now he felt secure enough in his position to turn down an invitation from the Commander-in-Chief himself. That afternoon, Grant met with President Lincoln and several cabinet officers as they began to formulate their plan for Reconstruction. After the meeting, Grant expressed his regrets to Lincoln in private at missing the double date. You see, Julia misses the kids so much, and we already have tickets for a train to Philadelphia. Now, Lincoln, of all people, understood the importance of spousal harmony, and so he didn't press. After all, as he would later explain to his bodyguard, he didn't really want to go to the theater that night either. But it was the last showing of our American cousin, and Mary was intent on attending. So he'd have to suck it up. Announcements of the president's and General Grant's upcoming visit to Ford's Theater had already been printed and circulated about town, and so it was the hot place to be that night. Many theatergoers were sure to be disappointed with the general's absence, but they'd have to make do with the last-minute replacements recruited by Mrs. Lincoln, Clara Harris, the young daughter of a New York senator, and her military officer fiancé, Major Henry Rathbone. Lincoln had been to Ford's at least four times previously, including one visit to see the increasingly well-known young theater star John Wilkes Booth, featuring in a production of The Marble Heart. Now, Booth wasn't in the cast of Our American Cousin, but the folks at Ford Theater knew him well enough that he was permitted to come and go as he pleased. Throughout that afternoon, several acquaintances who spoke with President Lincoln noted that he seemed to be in exceptionally good spirits. The wary look on his face seemingly ever-present for the past three and a half years, had finally faded. He and Mary held hands during a romantic carriage ride to the theater, 
talking of their plans for a trip to Europe after the second term concluded, and resolving to be more cheerful now that the war was over, and now that they were finally beginning to overcome the deep grief that each had suffered after the death of their son Willie. They arrived at the theater about 30 minutes late. Fords was only six blocks or so from the White House, but the president had been delayed by the customary evening visitors. Upon their arrival during the second act, the play was temporarily halted while the orchestra played Hail to the Chief. The 1,700 in attendance granted the presidential party with a standing ovation, and they settled into their box. Together, Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln enjoyed the play, Mrs. Lincoln occasionally whispering in her husband's ear, pointing out the aspects of the performance that she found especially amusing. And there was one particular line in the third act that was known to be a showstopper, routinely drawing the loudest audience laughter of the entire production. It happens when one character is revealed not to be the heir to a fortune, as supposed by the others, and in response to being uncovered replies, Don't know the manners of good society, eh? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, you solidologizing old man trap. And I have no idea what solidologizing means, but rest assured, the contemporary sources all agree that that line was hilarious. Now, John Wilkes Booth knew our American cousin forward and backward, and he knew the theater would be the loudest immediately after the line was delivered. Known as he was by the staff, Booth had made his way into the theater without raising any suspicions, and made his way up toward the presidential box. Several audience members noticed Booth, but they viewed the sighting as more akin to a celebrity spotting, like if you happen to see Johnny Depp at a concert or something, than as anything to cause concern. The door to the presidential box was supposed to be guarded, but the Washington police officer assigned to guard duty had left his post for a drink at a nearby saloon. But he probably would have let a well-known actor like Booth in to see the president anyway. And so, just as Mary and Abraham Lincoln and hundreds of others in attendance began to laugh at the solidologizing old man trap line, just as Booth had anticipated, the assassin burst through the door, shot the president in the back of the head with his derringer, stabbed Major Rathbone, and leaped onto the stage, breaking his leg in the fall, and shouting, Six Semper Tyrannis! Thus always to tyrants, the state motto of Virginia. The knife that stabbed but did not seriously injure Major Rathbone had probably been intended for Ulysses Grant. You see, Booth was involved in a conspiracy with four or perhaps more other men to assassinate Lincoln, Vice President Andrew Johnson, Secretary of State William Seward, and General Grant, in hopes of decapitating the leadership of the Union war effort. Seward was stabbed and severely wounded, but he survived the assault. And the conspirator charged with killing Johnson lost his nerve and never made the attempt. Lincoln, though, would never regain consciousness after the initial gunshot and was pronounced dead early the next morning, though the first doctor to examine him, a young but experienced Union Army surgeon, determined almost immediately that he had no chance of survival. Four conspirators would be hanged as a result of the plot, and Booth was shot dead during his capture a few days later the culmination of an enormous manhunt. Grant said of receiving word of the assassination of his commander-in-chief and friend via telegraph the next day, quote, It would be impossible for me to describe the feeling that overcame me at the news. I knew his goodness of heart, his generosity, his yielding disposition, his desire to have everybody happy, 
and above all, his desire to see all the people of the United States enter again upon the full privileges of citizenship with equality among all, unquote. During his return trip to Washington, Grant received an anonymous note while aboard the train. It read, General Grant, thank God as I do that you still live. It was your life that fell to my lot, and I followed you on the cars. Your car door was locked, and thus you escaped me. Thank God. Now, can you imagine receiving a letter like that? It's chilling just to read about it. But of course, Grant lived on. But Lincoln was gone, leaving the country and the world, really, wondering who would take the lead in mending the Union back together. Who, if not Lincoln, would reunite the country that had so recently and so viciously been torn asunder. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part four, and the conclusion of our portrait of Ulysses Grant. In this show, we'll be looking for the first time, really, at Reconstruction, and we'll also delve into some other areas of the Grant presidency. We've been studying Grant for a while, so I'm kind of looking forward to wrapping up the series. But at the same time, he's been quite a lot of fun to study, and I'm sure he'll come up in future shows, so this is not the last we'll see of U.S. Grant. Before we get going, I want to thank everyone for listening and encourage anyone who has any questions or comments about the show or any input for future shows to check in with us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. And remember, we spell gray with an E. I make a point to respond to all emails, and frankly, I really enjoy getting them and connecting with some of my fellow history enthusiasts. And finally, I got a question about the music on the show, which I figured I would share with everyone. Um, We, of course, use Battle Cry of Freedom, which I suspect most of this show's listeners are familiar with, for our segues. And the intro music doesn't really have a title. It's just some folksy-sounding banjo picking played on a dobro. Um, It is original music, so if anyone has a good idea for a name, I'm all ears. But I could talk about uh, music all day, though I suspect I'd lose my audience if I did that. So instead, let's get started with part four of our portrait of Ulysses S. Grant. From the get-go, Abraham Lincoln favored reconciliation with the South. Before the war broke out, he tried to appease Southerners by assuring them that he had no intention of completely abolishing slavery, he just didn't want to see it expand. During the early part of the war, he repeatedly said that his number one priority was maintaining the Union, and that his position on slavery would be whatever he thought best furthered that objective. Then, after it became clear that abolition was going to have to happen, he still emphasized that he wasn't out to punish any Southerners. Some political instigators of the rebellion might have to face some consequences, but of the Confederate leaders even, Lincoln said, quote, I hope there will be no persecution, no bloody work after the war is over. No one need expect me to take any part in hanging or killing these men, even the worst of them. Frighten them out of the country. Open the gates. Let down the bars. Enough lives have been lost. Unquote. So Lincoln just wanted to turn a blind eye and let them leave the country. Retribution was unnecessary. In his second inaugural address, he famously declared a policy of charity for all, malice toward none. But Lincoln knew that some of the more hawkish Republicans in Washington did not share these sentiments. And so he decided to do what he could to sidestep the more bloodthirsty members of his own party, saying, I think it is providential that this great rebellion is crushed, just as Congress is adjourned. 
and there are none of the disturbing elements of that body to hinder and embarrass us. If we are wise and discreet, we shall reanimate the states and get their governments in successful operation, with order prevailing and the union reestablished before Congress comes together in December. Unquote. So Lincoln wanted to have the state governments of the southern states back up and running and governing themselves within eight months or so. He didn't want the federal government running the southern states, and he didn't think that it would do a very effective job of it anyway. Now, he recognized the problems that might engender, but he still maintained, we can't undertake to run state governments in all of these southern states. Their own people must do that, though I reckon at first that some of them may do it badly. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton saw the situation uh, more like the radical Republican group that Shelby Foote refers to as the Jacobins. They wanted a military occupation of the conquered South before any consideration of readmission, but Lincoln objected to that harsh approach. But now Lincoln was gone, leaving the presidency in the hands of Union-loyal Tennessean Andrew Johnson, who Henry Ward Beecher described as a man well-fitted for carrying on a fight, but not skilled in peace, with a morbid sense of justice. And as an aside, Beecher wrote a really excellent eulogy of Grant that I'm going to reference a few times in this show. Um, you can find it online, and I recommend doing so if you're interested in um, reading an account of Grant's life written by one of his contemporaries. Now, somewhat ironically, as it turns out, Ulysses Grant's concern with Andrew Johnson was that he would be overly harsh on the defeated rebels, potentially setting the stage for a second civil war, uh, similarly to how the Treaty of Versailles would affect Germany 50-some years later. Johnson had indicated his view was that rebellion was treason, and the punishment for treason was hanging. But before Reconstruction could really begin, uh, there were a few loose ends that still needed to be tied up. Joseph Johnston was still on the loose with his now small army in the Carolinas, and there were still Confederate regulars actively fighting in the Trans-Mississippi. And, of course, plenty of irregulars at large throughout the South. Grant was concerned that the assassination would inspire the rebels to keep fighting, possibly as guerrillas, though Richmond disavowed any involvement in Lincoln's killing. So Grant felt compelled to order mobilization, but his concerns were largely laid to rest when Sherman accepted Johnston's surrender a few days later. The terms extended by Sherman were, simply put, amazingly generous. So much so, in fact, that when Grant heard about it, he knew that there'd be trouble in Washington, because Sherman had negotiated well beyond his authority. Sherman's deal bound the civilian authorities to recognize the governments of the southern states as they presently stood— and provided blanket amnesty in exchange for dissolving the army. Grant forwarded the terms along to Secretary of War Stanton with a recommendation that they be reviewed by President Johnson and the cabinet. As Grant expected, the deal was summarily rejected, and Grant was ordered to travel south, relieve Sherman of command, and negotiate more palatable terms, which he soon did. Uh, the terms were more or less the same as Appomattox. Now, remember, Grant and Sherman were good friends, and Grant recognized that this situation could be embarrassing to Sherman. So he tried to keep the whole deal quiet, but Stanton, in what amounts to a real jerk move, went directly to the New York Times with his account of how Sherman was ready to permit the rebels to keep slavery and let Jefferson Davis and company off the hook, 
and put the southern states in a position to resume hostilities after they took a little time off to recover. So as you might expect, Sherman didn't take kindly to Stanton's throwing him under the bus. And he would hold a bit of a grudge against the Secretary of War for the rest of his life. To his credit, though, he publicly played it off as though it was no big deal, saying, I envy not the task of Reconstruction, and am delighted that the Secretary has relieved me of it. Privately, though, he described being outraged beyond measure. It appeared as though the weight of the unenviable task of Reconstruction, which Sherman was delighted to have been relieved of, would fall on Andrew Johnson. And he surprised all parties involved by adopting Lincoln's policy of leniency. By the end of May 1865, he had ordered the release of all Confederate military prisoners, with just a few exceptions, and offered pardons and restored property rights to former rebels, on the condition that they swear an oath of loyalty to the Union. The amnesty, though, did have quite a few exceptions. Holders of civil or diplomatic offices, state governors, former United States senators and congressmen, federal judges, high-ranking military officers— Uh, Graduates of West Point or Annapolis and wealthy active participants were all left out. But even those could be granted amnesty upon a personal application to the president, with the applications to be liberally granted. By October, every governor who had submitted an application had received a pardon, as had Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens. And within one year, only Jefferson Davis remained incarcerated. Johnson took advantage of the congressional recess in 1865 that Lincoln had also planned on exploiting, so he initially encountered little resistance. By the time the new congressional term began in the fall, Johnson's position was that Reconstruction was just about over. The states were one big happy family again. But the dominant Republicans in the Senate did not see it that way. And so when the fall term began... It didn't take long for Johnson to realize that he didn't have Congress's backing. Reconstruction wasn't over, it had only just begun, and it would go on for 12 more years. As Shelby Foote describes it, vengeance-minded, the hard war men were out for blood, and House member George Julian called for the hanging of all rebel leaders, including Davis and Lee, saying, I would hang liberally while I had my hand in. And with few Democrats left in office, the radical Republicans were able to call the shots. And they wanted a military occupation of the South, along with the permanent destruction of Dixie's aristocracy. So the legislature rejected the reformed state governments and refused to seat their representatives in Congress. Over Johnson's veto, the Reconstruction Act divided the South into five military districts under the administration of Union generals. Some of this was motivated by vengeance some by genuine concern for the freed slaves, and some was just an old-fashioned power play. The sooner the former Confederate states were readmitted, the sooner a two-party balance would be restored in Washington, ending the radicals' unopposed power. And the question of readmission also involved something of a theoretical dispute. Johnson's position, and the position favored by Grant, was that the states hadn't ever really left the Union— Secession was illegal, after all, so the declarations of secession were invalid. It was just a matter of returning to how things were in 1861. The radicals' view, on the other hand, was that in seceding, the Confederate states had effectively dissolved themselves. And now to be readmitted, they would need to go through the constitutional process the same as any new state. And there would be some prerequisites. 
like ratification of the 14th Amendment, granting full citizenship to former slaves. There was also a dispute as to how many representatives the southern states would have in the House, now that slavery was abolished and the three-fifths clause was obsolete. The Republican concern was that if every person was counted as a whole person, the South, and therefore the Democrats, stood to gain some House seats. And there was still plenty of opposition in the North to fully enfranchising the black population that lived in the North, free or not. So the solution they came up with was to exclude from the population count, for purposes of determining congressional representation, any groups which were not allowed to vote. So effectively, the northern states could keep their laws that forbid blacks from voting without losing much or any representation, because the northern black population was much smaller than the south's. But the southern states stood to lose quite a few seats if they prevented former slaves from voting. So the radicals fought Johnson, and they rejected his leniency, and there was soon some serious hostility between the president and the legislature. But this raises an interesting what-if question. What if Lincoln had skipped the theater that day like he wanted to, and was still around to be the guiding hand during Reconstruction? Johnson's approach was pretty much what Lincoln had indicated that he intended to do. Would the radicals have fought Lincoln like they did Johnson? Could they have? I mean, after all, Lincoln was a popularly elected president, and with the war over, he had the support and confidence of the vast majority of the public. And he had the support and friendship of the most popular and arguably influential man in the country, Ulysses Grant. Now, as it stood, Grant tried to stay neutral. Officially, he maintained that it is not proper that officers of the army should take part in political matters. Practically, he favored a middle ground approach, agreeing with Johnson's general leniency, but definitely sympathizing with the radicals' notion of empowering the former slaves. He spoke out in favor of going easy on the rebel leaders. Uh, as to Lee in particular, who Grant saw as important to regaining the loyalty and confidence of the Southern people, Grant said, all the people except a few political leaders will accept whatever he does is right and will be guided to a great extent by his example. In the fall of 1865, Johnson assigned Grant the job of touring the South to inspect the condition of the Union Army still in occupation and to take the temperature of the local population. Grant came away with a positive impression overall and was encouraged with the progress that had already been made. He reported that, the mass of thinking men of the South accept the present situation of affairs in good faith. Most Southerners accepted that the slavery issue had been settled forever by the highest tribunal, arms, that men can resort to. Nonetheless, he recommended that a military presence remain in the South, but more to protect against racial violence than to put down any potential future insurrection. Johnson blamed the political and racial violence in the South on the radical Republicans, and he took his case directly to the people. Johnson toured the country, denouncing the Republican congressional leadership. He declared, Being in power, their object is to perpetuate themselves in power. God being willing, I will kick them out. Grant accompanied Johnson on part of the tour, at the president's request, but he was privately very much opposed to Johnson's trying to stir up animosity toward Congress in the southern and border states. He referred to Johnson's attempt to turn the people against their elected representatives as a national disgrace. 
1866 off-year elections were characterized by political unrest, highlighted by riots in Memphis, New Orleans, and Baltimore. Johnson put Grant in charge of maintaining order, and General Grant demonstrated solid judgment by resisting calls to send in the army, uh, concerned that a military presence would only increase the tension. But when Grant visited Baltimore personally to investigate, he found the political turbulence was much worse than he had expected. He played it down in the media, but quietly he transferred troops from New York to Fort McHenry in case of any Election Day disturbances. Either cooler heads prevailed or the show of strength was effective because Election Day 1866 did not see the violence that many had anticipated. What Election Day 1866 did see, though, was further gains for the Republicans. President Johnson's gamble in campaigning throughout the country in opposition to the Jacobins hadn't paid off, and now he had pretty much no allies left in Washington. But even so, Johnson didn't back down. Instead, he doubled down. One of the most vociferous critics of his administration was actually part of it, and that would be Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Now, technically, Stanton worked for Johnson, but that's not how it looked. The two men openly disagreed on how aggressively Reconstruction should be administered, and Stanton regularly issued orders to the army that contradicted Johnson's policies. So if you're Johnson, you have to fire Stanton, right? I mean, after all, uh, the president can't have a cabinet officer who's openly hostile. But it wasn't that easy. Anticipating Stanton's removal, Congress had passed the Tenure of Office Act a year earlier, which forbade the president from removing any official whose appointment had required Senate approval without the Senate's consent. Johnson viewed the Tenure of Office Act as unconstitutional, so he removed Stanton anyway, replacing him with a friendlier Ulysses Grant while the Senate was in recess. Now, Grant also thought that the act was unconstitutional, but he still tried to talk Johnson out of removing Stanton. And when he couldn't do that, he reluctantly agreed to accept only a temporary appointment until the Senate was back in session. When the Senate did reconvene in the fall, it quickly rejected Stanton's removal, as expected, and Grant resigned, uh, but without providing any prior notice to Johnson. Now, there's some dispute as to exactly what happened next, but Johnson viewed Grant's resignation as a betrayal. Johnson insisted that Grant had promised to stay in office until he was removed by the courts, or at least to give Johnson enough notice to allow him to appoint a replacement. Grant denied that he had ever said that, and maintained that reading the Tenure of Office Act closely, he believed he could have been subjected to fines or even incarceration had he not resigned after the Senate refused to remove Stanton. So even if Johnson was 100% certain that he was right and that Grant had broken faith, what he did next really can't be described as anything less than both spiteful and incredibly stupid. Johnson wrote a letter to Grant setting forth in detail how he believed that Grant had betrayed him by breaking a promise. And he released the letter to the press. Grant sent a firm reply, quote, Mr. President, where my honor as a soldier and integrity as a man have been so violently assailed, pardon me for saying I can but regard this whole matter from the beginning to the end as an attempt to involve me in the resistance of law for which you hesitated to assume responsibility and orders, and thus to destroy my character before the country, unquote. 
Now, Grant had been the one truly powerful ally, or at least non-enemy, that Johnson still had in Washington. After this exchange, the two men uh, were no longer on speaking terms. So, of course, the House impeached Johnson for his violation of the Tenure of Office Act, and the Senate held a trial beginning March 30, 1868. Though the majority of senators voted for removal, the prosecution famously fell just short of the two-thirds required, with ten Republicans and all nine Democrats voting nay. There's substantial evidence that bribes, in the form of attractive political appointments and even plain old cash, were generously offered to sway the votes of the dissenting Republicans toward the prosecution. And so this isn't one of the highlights of American political history. And the acquittal votes ended up being a career killer for the Republican dissenters, none of whom would ever be elected to public office again. But as something of a consolation, Kansas Senator Edmund G. Ross, who cast the deciding vote amidst intense pressure from his colleagues, would be featured nearly 100 years later in John F. Kennedy's book, Profiles in Courage. As for Grant, um, after being involved in this episode and witnessing for a few years so much of the other knuckle-headedness that goes on in Washington, he remarked to Sherman, All the romance of feeling that men in high places are above personal considerations and act only from motives of pure patriotism and for the general good of the public has been destroyed. An inside view proves too truly very much the reverse. But despite, or perhaps as a result of, this jaundiced awareness of the political reality in Washington, Grant agreed to accept the Republican nomination in 1868. Now, I say he agreed to accept it because he certainly did not campaign for it. He didn't lobby for delegate votes or issue any policy statements or even bother to attend the convention. He said to Sherman of the highest office in the land, It is one I would not occupy for any mere personal consideration, but from the nature of the contest since the close of active hostilities, I have been forced into it in spite of myself, unquote. So the job was just too important to leave to the corrupt career politicians. The Republican Party platform condemned Johnson personally and endorsed extending full suffrage to blacks in the South, with the northern states to decide for themselves. Grant only stated that if elected president, he promised to faithfully administer the laws. Andrew Johnson tried to secure the Democratic nomination, but he lost out to New York Governor Horatio Seymour, uh, running alongside ex-Republican Francis Blair, a Union war hero, Missouri Unionist, and die-hard Lincoln supporter. The Democratic Party platform focused on opposition to harsh Reconstruction policies, uh, which were seen as encroaching upon the rights of the southern states. In particular, they declared that the carpetbag governments, uh, made up primarily of Republicans from northern states, were not representative of the southern people and would lead to another war. The Democrats were popular in the South, but with several former Confederate states still not readmitted and therefore not able to provide any electoral votes, they stood little chance of winning and especially against a candidate as popular as Grant. As with the nomination, Grant didn't campaign for the general election, though he did have surrogates speaking on his behalf throughout the country. Instead, Grant used the campaign season to tour the Great Plains with Sherman, Philip Sheridan, and his sons uh, Fred and Ulysses Jr., now going by Buck. He spent August through October 
the peak of the campaign season, back in Galena, relaxing with Julia. Grant's lack of interest in campaigning uh, didn't prevent the Democrats from campaigning against him. He was accused of fathering an illegitimate child with a young Native woman during his time in Oregon, and uh, familiarly, uh, once again accused of being a drunk. The mudslinging didn't have much effect, and Grant was able to ease the concerns of the small but politically powerful American Jewish community over Order Number 11, um, which we discussed in Part 2, with the help of a Jewish political ally from Ohio, Simon Wolf. Wolf vouched for Grant's character, declaring that he could, quote, assert unhesitatingly that he never intended to insult any honorable Jew, that he never thought of their religion, unquote. The uh, ill-worded order was aimed only at certain evil-designing persons who respected neither law nor order. When November came, Grant cruised to an easy victory, carrying the Electoral College 214 to 80. He lost only New York, the border states, Louisiana, Georgia, and Oregon. He won six former Confederate states, but that was in part because many former Confederates were prevented from voting. Uh, when elected as the 18th president, Grant was still only 46, making him, at the time of his election, the youngest elected president in American history. Historian H.W. Brands, who wrote a really good, though unquestionably positive, a biography on Grant, writes of the election, quote, Grant's victory was a victory for the idea that people could govern themselves. The presidency, the greatest gift the American people could offer, was hardly excessive for such a champion, unquote. Now, that's a um, really poetic and inspiring quote, but I suspect that many Southerners in 1868 would have seen a certain amount of irony in it. The focus of Grant's presidency would, of course, have to be continuing Reconstruction, and that was no small task due to the sometimes conflicting goals of winning back the hearts and mind of the Southern people while also protecting the civil rights of the newly liberated. But historically, that's not what the Grant presidency uh, has been known for. No, up until recently, the Grant administration was synonymous with scandals, and there were quite a few of them, um, which we'll look at here shortly. But it's important to note that the consensus among historians— and among his contemporaries even, is that Grant was not personally dishonest or corrupt. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that, as Sherman had worried back in 1864 when Grant was first called to Washington by Lincoln, he was just really bad at identifying dishonest or corrupt people around him. History writer Alan Axelrod presents the traditional view of Grant's presidency like this, quote, both terms of his administration were blighted by cynical, systematic corruption and casual criminality, unequaled even by the notorious Harding administration of the 1920s. Grant's personal reputation remained remarkably unsullied, except that he was marked as something of a dupe, naive and feckless, unquote. And I can't hear unsullied without throwing in a Game of Thrones reference. So think of how Dario Naharis tells Grey Worm, the unsullied captain, that he isn't able to predict or relate to how people act when they're scared because Grey Worm has never known fear. In the same way, Grant can't sniff out the dishonest people in his administration because he can't relate to dishonesty. He doesn't spot dishonesty because he isn't dishonest. Takes one to know one, right? And if that's too much of a stretch, or if you've never watched Game of Thrones and have no idea what I'm talking about, 
Um, thanks for humoring me. Another well-known proponent of the traditional view of the Grant administration, Shelby Foote, puts it like this. Grant, with his profound mistrust of intellectuals and reformers, a narrow-headed man he called them, with eyes so close set that they could look out of the same gimlet hole without winking, provided the perfect foil by which the vindictives could secure what they were after. He admired their forthrightness, as he did that of certain high-powered businessmen, who also profited from his trust, with the result that the country would wait more than 50 years for an administration as crooked in money matters and a solid hundred for one as morally corrupt. Once again, thank you for humoring me in my ridiculous attempt to match Shelby Foote's accent. Um, I'm a huge fan of Shelby Foote, and I I really recommend that anybody um, that hasn't done so before and has the time to spend reading 3,000 pages or whatever it is, uh, read his narrative history of the Civil War. It's it's a fantastic book. I might have recommended that before, but uh, it's worth two recommendations. Um, anyway, Shelby Foote, he's a Southerner um, from Mississippi, but he had a pretty favorable view of Grant the General, just not Grant the President. A more sympathetic contemporary, Henry Ward Beecher, describes how, quote, imperious counselors and corrupt parasites dimmed the light of his political administration, unquote. Uh, Beecher continues, such was his loyalty to friendship that it must be set down as a fault, a fault rarely found among public men. So according to Beecher, Grant just couldn't imagine that people he thought of as his friends were up to no good. Um, There's been several historians and history writers, including H.W. Brands, who have argued recently that Grant has been rated unfairly. The argument is that scandals were exaggerated by Southern historians with an axe to grind, and that Grant doesn't get enough credit for the good things he did, Um, most notably his efforts on civil rights, um, his foreign policy, and his attempt to reform the civil service. Now, my amateur opinion, for what it's worth, is that there is something to Brands' argument, but at the same time, it really is hard to get past all the scandals once you start looking at them. The Washington, D.C. corruption, um, which incidentally should be in the running if the Wizards ever decide to change their names again, um, tried to get a hold of Grant even before he was sworn into office. Railroads started offering him complimentary palace cars, and a group of money men purchased a house from Grant that he had acquired for only $30,000 a few years earlier uh, for a cool 65000 and for the purpose of gifting it to Sherman, who was considered a likely candidate for a cabinet post or another upper-tier position in the administration, uh, but who in actuality didn't want anything to do with politics. And that episode is kind of uh, a microcosm for the problems Grant had as president. In a nutshell, when a group of uh, proto-lobbyists offered to buy his house for more than double what he had paid for it not long ago um, so that they could give it to his friend— he didn't consider that they might be expecting something in return. Grant's cabinet picks also raised some eyebrows early on. Uh, He looked more toward people with whom he had established relationships and who he thought he could count on to be loyal than toward established politicians with political clout. For Treasury Secretary, he nominated New Yorker Alexander Stewart, who, in Grant's defense, had as much knowledge about finance and fiscal policy as anyone in the country, but who had also been part of the group that purchased Grant's house for Sherman. So not a good look. But Stewart was unable to serve in the post uh, due to a law forbidding Treasury officers 
from having business interests that involve the customs office, uh, which Stewart had in spades. And as Stanton's successor as Secretary of War, Grant nominated John Rawlins, his friend and former adjutant, though Rawlins would die from tuberculosis shortly into the term. And for his part, Stanton received a nomination to the Supreme Court, uh, for which he was qualified and was confirmed, but he also died before taking the bench. Grant's former patron in Congress, Elihu Washburn, was nominated for Secretary of State, but again, health problems prevented him from serving. Predictably, Republicans uh, publicly announced that the cabinet picks were brilliant, while Democrats were dubious. A powerful uh, New York Republican, John Bigelow, provided a more candid assessment, quote, If he has a policy and wanted men merely for instruments to put it into operation, it is admirably chosen. If he wants responsible ministers, he has not got them, unquote. As for his Reconstruction policy, um, as we mentioned earlier, Grant tried to balance the goals of reconciliation with the South and protecting former slaves. He began advocating for readmission of Virginia, Mississippi, and Texas early on, uh, which the radicals opposed, wanting to make ratification of the 15th Amendment a prerequisite. Both sides would get what they wanted. The final former Confederate state to formally return to the Union, Georgia, officially did so in July of 1870, the same year that the 15th Amendment became law. Uh, Grant described the amendment with its guarantee of freed slaves' right to vote as, quote, a measure of grander importance than any other one act of the kind from the foundation of our free government to the present day, unquote. And to Henry Ward Beecher, quote, it was a political necessity to arm them with the ballot as a means of self-defense, unquote. Now, to actually enforce the 15th Amendment, Congress passed the appropriately named Enforcement Acts, and there were three of them in 1870 and 1871. The first forbid states from discriminating in voter registration and authorized the president to use the army to enforce it. And when Grant found it insufficient, he sent a report to Congress describing the violent voter suppression that was occurring, and he asked for stronger legislation. In response, the Second Enforcement Act was passed, providing for stiffer penalties and permitting federal oversight of local elections. And shortly thereafter, the Third Act, also known as the KKK Act, um, specifically targeting the Ku Klux Klan by defining Klan activity as rebellion against the federal government, and controversially permitted the president to uh, suspend habeas corpus in Klan investigations. And what that means is that federal law enforcement could hold someone taken into custody for suspected Klan involvement without ever having to present the reason for the imprisonment to a judge. In 1871, relying on the KKK Act's authority, um, Grant did in fact suspend habeas corpus in South Carolina and deployed federal troops to confront the Klan. And overall, the Enforcement Acts would result in over a thousand convictions. Unsurprisingly, Grant received some heavy criticism from Democrats and even moderate Republicans for suspending habeas corpus and using the army to enforce the federal law. The more moderate opponents uh, argued that Grant's actions violated the rights of the southern states, treating them like conquered territory rather than as the co-equal prodigal sons that they were. The more stringent denunciations accused Grant of conspiring with the radicals to create a military dictatorship. And, of course, some of the radicals argued that Grant hadn't gone far enough in smacking down the South. So balancing out the Enforcement Acts was the Amnesty Act of 1872, 
which allowed something like 150,000 former Confederates to vote and hold office again in the United States. Around 500 oathbreakers, as they were called, um, officials who had held public office in the Union uh, during the antebellum period, were excluded as unpardonable. And these were mostly high-ranking military officers and politicians. One more uh, piece of important legislation would be passed in 1875, the Civil Rights Act, which prohibited discrimination in public accommodations and transportation and forbade discriminatory jury selection. But Grant didn't support the act, and it wasn't popular with the public. He signed it into law when it was put on his desk, but his administration's enforcement of it was unenthusiastic. And this was because, uh, well, two reasons. Grant had asked for an entirely different civil rights law, which he didn't get. And also, the act had been written and lobbied for by Senator Charles Sumner, who Grant just personally couldn't stand, which we'll discuss later. Um, Succeeding administrations would adopt the policy of non-enforcement of the act until 1883, when the Supreme Court held it unconstitutional. By the time of the 1876 election, Reconstruction was winding down. Grant's eventual successor, Rutherford Hayes, uh, finished behind Democrat Samuel Tilden in the popular vote, but neither candidate earned sufficient electoral votes to clinch the victory. So um, rather than have the matter resolved by a House vote, Republicans agreed to remove the last federal troops still in the South in exchange for the electoral votes of Louisiana and Florida. Uh, effectively handing the presidency to Hayes and ending Reconstruction. And to put a final bow around our brief discussion of Reconstruction under Grant and its anticlimactic ending, I'll again quote Shelby Foote, uh, who, remember, was writing in the 50s and 60s. Quote, The 14th and 15th Amendments remained as legacies of Reconstruction, along with greatly expanded free school facilities for both races, But until the government and the courts were ready again to take the Constitution at its word, the Negro would be locked in a caste system of race etiquette, as rigid as any he had known in formal bondage, Historians favoring a a fresh, more positive look at Grant's presidency like to cite his civil rights record, and, and they correctly note that after Grant, it would be nearly 100 years before another administration made any serious efforts to enforce the principle of equal protection of law, Um, at least as far as race relations. But with any historical figure, you have to take the good with the bad, right? And in Grant's case, the bad means scandals. Four different members of Grant's cabinet had to resign as a result of various scandals. And nepotism was a real problem, with members of the Grant family receiving lucrative government contracts during his time in office. The first major scandal broke when Abel Corbin, Grant's brother-in-law, used his connection to Grant to conspire with financier Jay Gould to corner the market on gold. Corbin was 24 years older than Grant's sister Virginia and hadn't demonstrated any interest until after Grant started obtaining some political influence. Corbin and Gould's plan was to convince Grant to promote a high price for gold by directing the Treasury not to cease sale of his gold reserves. Ostensibly, the purpose of the policy was to protect Western farmers by encouraging the dollar to trade low, thereby promoting agricultural exports. Gould planted the idea in Grant's mind after using Corbin to get close to the president, uh, who was a novice when it came to financial matters. But really, Gould and Corbin, with a $1.5 million loan from Gould, along with fellow financier Jay Fish, were quietly attempting to buy up all the gold on the market to drive the price up. 
And they knew, or thought they knew, that the price would stay high based upon the inside information they had about the administration's gold policy. So with the price artificially high, uh, merchants who were required to pay in gold uh, would be forced to pay an exorbitant price for it, uh, presumably from Gould or Corbin, or risk defaulting. And Gould and Fisk could bring enough purchasing power to the table that the plan would work as long as the federal government didn't start selling its gold and thereby increase the supply. But Corbin pressed too hard, and Grant started to get suspicious. When the gold price had skyrocketed all the way up to 160 paper dollars for $100 in gold, Grant ordered the Treasury Secretary to sell $4 million in federal gold reserves. Uh, the price dropped from 160 to 135 in a matter of minutes, triggering a massive drop in agricultural and stock market prices. Uh, they came to be known as Black Friday, just like the Cypress Hill album. And I know I'm dating myself as a child of the 90s with that reference. So Congress investigated the gold-fixing scheme, and the committee came down pretty hard on Gould and Corbin, though they escaped any criminal convictions. Grant was cleared of any wrongdoing, with the committee finding, quote, the wicked and cunningly devised attempts of the conspirators to compromise the President of the United States or his family utterly failed. The committee finds nothing inconsistent with the patriotism and integrity which befit the chief executive of the nation, unquote. But even with Congress's vote of confidence after the investigation, Grant's reputation took a hit. The credit mobilier scandal began in 1867, um, but wasn't uncovered until 1872. And I hope I'm saying that right. I'm not sure if it's a mobilier or a mobilier. Um, either way, it involved a construction company building the first continental railroad, uh, Credit Mobilier, charging inflated prices to Union Pacific, which was subsidized with taxpayer money allocated by Congress. The contract between Union Pacific and Credit Mobilier was set up so as to look as though the railroad had impartially hired Credit Mobilier through an impartial bidding process, when in actuality, uh, Credit Mobilier had been chartered by Union Pacific executives, and the whole scheme was just a means of overcharging the government, which it was successful in doing to the tune of about $20 million. In return for setting up or overlooking the shenanigans, Washington politicians received kickbacks in the form of cash or stock options. An investigation by The Sun, which was a New York newspaper, implicated 15 different Washington figures, including Vice President Schuyler Colfax, Speaker of the House James Blaine, and Senator Henry Wilson, who would become Vice President during Grant's second term, along with future President James Garfield. Odie, however, was cleared of all charges. After another congressional investigation, a few members were censured, but there wasn't any serious attempts to prosecute. Uh, again, Grant wasn't involved but the uh, public was becoming increasingly frustrated with his failure to rein in the unethical conduct surrounding his administration. With the credit mobilier scandal breaking in 1872, it led to the formation of a new opposition party comprised of former Republicans disillusioned with the corruption. They creatively called themselves the Liberal Republican Party and nominated New York Tribune editor Horace Greeley. Greeley had been a vocal abolitionist and one of the founders of the Republican Party, he campaigned on civil service reform and ending Reconstruction. Though the Tribune strongly supported the war once it began, Greeley had initially advocated allowing the South to peacefully secede, a position that was used against him in the 1872 campaign. The Democrats threw their support behind Greeley and gave him their nomination too, 
in hopes of defeating Grant and ending Reconstruction. Grant once again declined to actively campaign, though surrogates campaigned on his behalf throughout the country, notably including Frederick Douglass, who was instrumental in galvanizing black voters in support of Grant. Despite concerns over corruption, Grant's uh, personal popularity again allowed him to cruise to an easy victory, defeating Greeley by 220 electoral votes. Although the 1872 presidential election was uh, uncontroversial, the same couldn't be said for state elections in the South. Three southern states, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi, erupted into political violence, and Grant would end up sending federal troops to Louisiana to restore order. More scandals emerged during the second term. In the Whiskey Ring, a national syndicate of liquor manufacturers and distributors, uh, along with federal revenue agents, conspired to exchange bribes for excise tax stamps. In practice, the distillers would pay to the federal agents 50% of the excise tax, and the agents then stamped the booze as though the tax had been paid while pocketing the money. The scheme was broken up in 1875, after a series of raids organized by Treasury Secretary Benjamin Bristow. Grant was, uh, again, demonstrably unaware that um, what amounted to theft of federal tax dollars was, was going on, but the popular consensus was starting to become that he had to bear some of the responsibility for surrounding himself with crooks. Bribery was similarly uh, rampant throughout the Department of the Interior. In 1875, an investigation of Secretary of the Interior uh, Columbus Delano found that he had accepted bribes in exchange for bogus land grants and had awarded profitable government contracts to unqualified individuals who did not actually perform or provide anything in return. Most notably, Delano's son and uh, Grant's brother Orville received large payments for drawing maps that they neither created nor had the ability to create. And in the Department of Indian Affairs, Crooked clerks and agents siphoned off federal money that had been intended for the tribes. Grant ordered Delano to reform the department, but the secretary refused and resigned. His replacement, Zachariah Chandler, was a reformer who deserves a lot of credit for cleaning up the department by firing all of the public servants, and I'm using ironic quotations there, who were involved in the corruption. And for good measure, in 1876, Secretary of War William Belknap was forced to resign when he was also found to have been taking bribes in exchange for awarding government contracts. He would be impeached by the House, but the Senate vote fell just short of conviction. Notably, several of the senators who voted against conviction declared that they had done so not because they thought that Belknap was innocent, but because they believed the Senate lacked the constitutional authority to convict a cabinet officer who was no longer in office. So Grant's answer to all the corruption was civil service reform. During his second term, he appointed a commission to study the problem and advocated for bringing an end to the spoils system in favor of a professional civil service. With civil service exams required to determine competency, and regulatory reforms providing some oversight in the hiring process. He started with some temporary measures uh, at the New York's Customs House, um, known to be a bastion of spoils system rent-seeking, to be implemented by Grant appointee and another future president, Chester Arthur. But despite the commission's recommendations and Grant's efforts, Congress refused to pass any civil service reform legislation. Grant was frustrated, but it wasn't an issue that he was willing to fight Congress over. Instead, he released a statement, quote, 
Civil service reform rests entirely with Congress. If members will give up claiming patronage, that will be a step gained. But there is an immense amount of human nature in the members of Congress, and it is human nature to seek power and use it to help friends. You cannot call it corruption. It is a condition of our representative form of government, unquote. When you have a system that's corrupt and the people who are responsible for addressing the corruption are the same people who are benefiting or profiting from it, reform is not going to come easy. Grant made an effort, but the the vested interests were still too powerful at that point. But Grant should still get some credit for planting the seed of civil service reform uh, that would germinate around seven years later when the assassination of President Garfield would make it clear that the spoil system needed to come to an end. So that's an overview of some of the infamous scandals of the Grant administration. Really, the, the two biggest criticisms of Grant that I see are that he was a truly bad judge of character when it came to political appointments, and that he wasn't proactive in addressing the problem when it became obvious. He was reactive enough in getting rid of people he realized were dirty, and he was an early proponent of civil service reform, but he didn't push for it early on when he had some more political capital to leverage Congress. Now, in my amateur opinion, uh, for what it's worth, once again, The root cause of the problem, and it was undeniably a problem, was less a failure of Grant and more a failure of the two-party system that was still lingering from the war. The Republicans were so dominant that it was effectively a period of one-party rule. And when you have a single party with more or less unchecked power, corruption is going to be more likely. So when people say that gridlock in Washington isn't a bug, it's a feature, you know, maybe there is something to that. And we're going to shift gears now to foreign policy, where the Grant administration is generally acknowledged as having been pretty good. And that's largely because of the efforts of Secretary of State Hamilton Fish. Fish was a former New York governor who initially turned down the job, but Grant uh, was able to convince him to reconsider out of a sense of patriotism and, and duty. He's generally considered to be Grant's best cabinet officer and one of the best secretaries of state in United States history. Uh, Fish managed to prevent a war with Spain when uh, a ship that was known as the Virginius, which was flying the U.S. flag uh, while covertly transporting war materials and rebel fighters to Cuba in violation of U.S. law, was captured by the Spanish Navy. And this was during the Cuban insurrection. So the local Spanish officials were harsh, executing the prospective freedom fighters, including eight American citizens. Saber-rattling began almost immediately, but Fish stepped in and negotiated for reparations, including payment to the executed Americans' families. Grant approved the deal, and war with Spain was averted, for 25 years or so anyway. Hamilton Fish also shone in his dealings with the British over what was known as the Alabama Claims. At the end of the Civil War, the U.S. government asserted claims against the U.K., arising from the construction by the British of three first-rate warships for the Confederacy. The ships were the CSS Florida, Shenandoah, and Alabama, and between them, they caused tens of millions uh, in damages to American commercial interests uh, through wartime privateering. The story of the Alabama in particular is uh, incredible, so hopefully we'll have a chance to look at that in the future. So the American claim was that by providing the ships to the Confederacy, The British had violated international law and prolonged the war. Some of the more hot-headed American politicians were demanding that the British government cede Canada to the U.S. as indemnity, 
And Senator Charles Sumner gave a speech on the Senate floor enthusiastically bashing Queen Victoria by name. The crown was not amused. So again, Fish steps in and meets in Washington with British emissary Sir John Rose to try to resolve the claims. What they worked out with Grant's approval came to be known as the Treaty of Washington. And it really was a brilliant bit of diplomacy on both sides. Both countries agreed to submit the monetary claims to an international tribunal for arbitration. Uh, The British wouldn't admit any fault, but they did agree to express their regret over the whole situation. And for good measure, they agreed to submit a dispute over the border between Washington State and Canada to German Emperor William I for a binding resolution. The results of the arbitration, um, which were that the British would pay $15.5 million in gold, um, that the United States would pay for fishing rights off the Canadian coast, and that the border dispute was decided in favor of the American claim, were not as important as the treaties establishing a precedent for the use of international arbitration. And it marked the beginning of the special relationship between the United States and, and the UK. There weren't any serious American demands for Canada after that, and the countries were never again um, in any danger of going to war. One of Grant's pet foreign policy projects during his first term was the annexation of Santo Domingo, now known as the Dominican Republic. Typical American imperialism, right? Well, not really. It was originally the idea of the Dominican government and was, by all accounts, supported by the majority of the Dominican people. Grant just really liked the idea. He told the Senate, quote, I believe it will redound greatly to the glory of the two countries interested, to civilization, and to the extirpation of the institution of slavery, unquote. So the idea was that Santo Domingo would provide the U.S. with an important military asset in the Caribbean, and with Santo Domingo in the fold, prices for sugar and coffee would go down. And producing more sugar domestically would end the de facto American economic support for Cuban and Brazilian slavery. So Grant asked Congress to appoint a commission to travel to Santo Domingo and make a recommendation for or against annexation. The commission, which included Frederick Douglass, visited the island and found that annexation was a win-win. Good for the U.S., good for the people of Santo Domingo, They want it, we want it, let's do it. Um, Douglas, in particular, was an enthusiastic supporter. So, why isn't Santo Domingo a U.S. state? It really boiled down to opposition from Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner, who declared that he was protesting in the name of the African race. According to Sumner, uh, Santo Domingo belonged to the, quote, colored race and never can become a permanent possession of the United States, unquote. And Sumner was the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. So he had a tremendous amount of clout with the Republicans in the Senate, and his vocal opposition was enough to torpedo the whole concept. Grant was furious with Sumner, um, who he said had privately told him that he would support annexation, uh, and the dispute led to a long-running feud between Grant and the Massachusetts politician. In an 1872 letter to Massachusetts' other senator, Harry Wilson, Grant described Sumner as unreasonable, cowardly, slanderous, unblushingly false. I feel a greater contempt for him than any other man in the Senate, unquote. Uh, Douglas was similarly angry with Sumner. He wrote, quote, If Mr. Sumner shall after that persevere in his present policy, I shall consider his opposition fractious and regard him as the worst foe the colored race has on this continent, unquote. 
And I really wish that we had Morgan Freeman to read that quote. In, in my head, I always hear Frederick Douglass quotes in Morgan Freeman's voice uh, because of the Ken Burns Civil War documentary. <laughs> Grant's policy with regard to the American Indians, which he referred to as the peace policy, can best be described as well-intentioned with tragic results. Grant explained his Indian peace policy like this, quote, The building of railroads and the access thereby given to all the agricultural and mineral regions of the country is rapidly bringing civilized settlements into contact with all the tribes of Indians. No matter what ought to be the relations between such settlements and the Aborigines, the fact is, they do not get on together. And one or the other has to give way in the end. A system which looks to the extinction of a race is too abhorrent for a nation to indulge in without entailing upon the wrath of all Christendom, and without engendering in the citizen a disregard for human life and the rights of others, dangerous to society. I see no remedy for this except in placing all the Indians on large reservations and giving them absolute protection there, unquote. So from Grant's perspective, the choice was between reservations and genocide, though I don't believe that term was yet in use. His priority was preventing further fighting, and he viewed reservations as the best means to that end. The Western tribes would have to forsake their traditional hunting-based way of life in favor of Western-style agriculture. Um, missionaries were dispatched to, to teach the science of farming, but even when the desire to learn was present, the reserved land wasn't suitable for cultivation. So by 1874, the destruction of the buffalo herds was finally starting to be seen as a problem. Nearly uh, 4 million bison had already been cut down for no good reason. And so with the conservation movement in its infancy, Congress justifiably passed a law prohibiting non-Indians from hunting buffalo. But Grant, uh, the well-known animal lover, vetoed it. He reasoned that it would actually be beneficial for the tribes if all the buffalo were gone. Then they'd have to stay on the reservations, and they wouldn't come into conflict with the settlers. Again, uh, good intentions, but we've all heard where the road paved with those leads. Uh, Grant's peace policy didn't stop all confrontations between natives and settlers, but they were reduced compared to earlier years. Aside from the forced abandonment of their way of life, a big problem with the reservation system that Grant advocated was the Department of Interior corruption that we mentioned earlier. When stuck on reservations, the Indians had to rely on food and supplies to be supplied by the government. But corrupt officials lined their own pockets, preventing adequate provisions from getting to the reservations. And then, in 1874, gold was discovered on Sioux land in South Dakota. Despite regulations forbidding prospectors and settlers from encroaching on the reservations, and Grant's orders to the military to use force to prevent such encroachments, prospectors came flooding in. Uh, General Phil Sheridan was in charge of the Plains at the time, and he reported to Grant that he didn't have sufficient manpower to keep the settlers out. So Grant made an offer to Sioux or uh, Lakota Chief Red Cloud to purchase the land for $25,000 as a means of avoiding further conflict. But the offer was rejected. The land was sacred and too important to sell. So Grant directed Sheridan to move the Sioux onto a reservation with force if necessary, though preferably without. Sheridan organized his men into multiple columns to basically herd the tribes. 
But one column led by General George Armstrong Custer, and I think you know where this is going, was destroyed at the famous Battle of the Little Bighorn, leading to calls for revenge throughout the country. Grant, though, blamed Custer, quote, I regard Custer's massacre as a sacrifice of troops brought on by Custer himself that was wholly unnecessary, wholly unnecessary, unquote. But in the face of public demand, Grant was forced to increase the military presence out west and direct Sheridan to crack down, which, of course, he did. Uh, it's generally agreed nowadays that the U.S. interaction with American Indians is among the saddest chapters in our history. Grant adopted a policy designed to protect the Western tribes, but which resulted in the loss of their nomadic way of life. Maybe he was right, and if they hadn't been forced to settle on reservations, they would have been completely wiped out. Um, the only other option seems to have been to forbid any further Western expansion, but that just wasn't going to happen. Uh, a policy like that would have been politically impossible and uh, practically unenforceable. Uh, for Grant, it was a, a no-win situation, and for the American Indians involved, it was worse. And the last thing I wanted to touch on with the Grant presidency is economic policy, but I'm going to skim through that because, uh, well, in my mind, it's, it's important, uh, but just doesn't offer much entertainment value. The important things to know is that this was the Gilded Age, and the laissez-faire approach dominated American economic thinking. Grant advocated fiscal discipline and was very successful in reducing the public debt during his first term, uh, which he got a lot of credit for. The debt fell by $300 million, or 10% of the total debt, um, which had uh, ballooned during the war, um, equal to about one year's federal budget. And the country experienced something of an economic boom, other than the setback caused by the gold-fixing scandal. Economically, his second term was dominated by the Panic of 1873, which pretty much erased all the economic gains of the first term. It started with European bank failures, but was exacerbated in the United States by the bursting of the Civil War bubble. Industrial production for the military was no longer needed, um, so the federal government was no longer borrowing huge amounts of money, and railroad construction had also slowed down. The Depression went on for five years, saw 14% unemployment, wage deflation, and the devastation of the credit industry. Historians argue over whether Grant could have done anything to avoid or lessen the Depression, but he does get some criticism for not taking action to increase the, uh, the money supply early on or the public confidence. And, and more importantly for our purposes, the Panic of 1873 was the first thing to put a serious dent in Grant's popularity with the general public. By 1876, he was ready to move on, and he left the presidency in the hands of Rutherford B. Hayes, after the Democrats and Republicans struck the deal we mentioned earlier that gave Hayes the presidency and ended Reconstruction. After leaving the White House, Grant and Julia decided to take a two-year trip around the world. Grant was tremendously popular overseas, though he was still viewed more as the Union hero of the Civil War than as a former president. Recognizing Grant's popularity, uh, Hayes unofficially deputized Grant as an American ambassador to the world. He and Julia started in England, having dinner with Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle. Uh, they visited everywhere from Italy to India to Japan. Grant met with Bismarck, Tsar Alexander II, who was very curious about the Sioux, and at the request of the Chinese government, unsuccessfully attempted to mediate a dispute between China and Japan. 
They returned to San Francisco in September of 1879, escorted across the Pacific by a Japanese naval ship after 28 months abroad. The world tour revitalized Grant's popularity with the public, and party insiders recruited Grant to run for a third term in 1880, after Hayes decided against a second. He again declined to lobby for the job, but he seems to have been willing. At the 1880 Republican convention, he received the most votes on the first ballot, but not a majority. After 36 more votes, the nomination was given to James Garfield. Henry Ward Beecher wrote of the Republicans' decision not to nominate Grant again in 1880, quote, The real objections among wise and dispassionate men was not so much against Grant as against the staff that would come in with him. Grant's success as a soldier, and then as a politician, hadn't given him any more business acumen than he had when he was trying to sell real estate in St. Louis before the war. He invested in a company formed by Jay Gould to build a, a railroad into Mexico, but when the Senate rejected a free trade deal, the company went bankrupt. Then he invested $100,000 in a financial firm started by his son and a friend called Grant and Ward. Ferdinand Ward had a reputation as a financial genius, but he was running what would come to be known as a Ponzi scheme. After the business started to go under, Ward talked Grant into putting another $150,000 into it, assuring him that they were only experiencing a temporary setback and just needed some more capital to get through it. Grant borrowed the money from William Vanderbilt, personally guaranteeing repayment of the loan, but Grant and Ward still went under, and the former war hero president was forced to liquidate nearly all of his assets to repay Vanderbilt, including medals he had been awarded during the war. To his credit, Vanderbilt accepted the deed to Grant's New York house and declared the debt paid in full and allowed Grant and Julia to live there for the duration of their lives. But Grant insisted on paying Vanderbilt back everything that he could. Ferdinand Ward would end up being convicted of fraud based in part upon Grant's testimony. Having lost his life savings to make enough money to get by, Grant started writing articles about his firsthand experiences in the war for The Century magazine which paid him $500 per article, uh, a very good price by the um, standards of the day. The editor was so impressed with Grant's writing and with the public response to the articles that he suggested Grant uh, publish his memoirs. Then in October of 1884, uh, Grant, complaining of a sore throat, visited his doctor and was diagnosed with throat cancer, no doubt not helped by his lifelong love of cigars. He knew he didn't have long, and he was anxious not to leave his beloved Julia behind as an impoverished widow. Congress had restored his rank as general of the army, which he had been required to resign upon becoming president, and with it restored his military pension. That helped, but alone wasn't sufficient to pay off all his debts. The Century magazine offered him a deal to publish his memoirs, with Grant to receive 10% royalties. But Mark Twain himself, who was friendly with Grant and sympathetic to his plight, beat the century's offer by a long shot. Twain offered Grant an unprecedented 75% royalties, along with an advance of $150,000, the largest that had ever been paid. And so Grant set to work writing the two-volume Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant, which he completed in less than a year, with some assistance with the legwork um, and in fact-checking from Fred and from one of Grant's former staff officers. Twain described Grant's memoirs as a literary masterpiece, and it's still widely considered the best memoir written by a former president. The reading public agreed. 
Julia would end up receiving over $450,000 in royalties. Again, a tremendous amount of money in the 19th century. Grant was only 63 when he died on July 23, 1885. He was instrumental in shaping the United States of the 20th century, but didn't live to see it. His body was viewed by over 250,000 people, and his New York City funeral attended by one and a half million. The funeral parade, stretching for seven miles, included former Presidents Hayes and Arthur and current President Cleveland, along with thousands of veterans of the Union Army. Former Confederate Generals Joseph Johnston and Simon Bolivar Buckner served as pallbearers on one side of his casket, with Union Generals Sherman and Sheridan on the other. Henry Ward Beecher, in attendance, described the scene, quote, Johnston and Buckner on one side, Sherman and Sheridan upon the other. He has come to his tomb a silent symbol that liberty has conquered slavery, patriotism, rebellion, and peace, war. He rests in peace. No drum or cannon shall disturb his slumber, unquote. Grant's final resting place, the General Grant National Memorial, more commonly known as Grant's Tomb, remains the largest tomb in North America. In a 1900 speech, Theodore Roosevelt would describe Ulysses Grant as one of the three most important men in shaping the character of the American nation, uh, along with Washington and Lincoln. Roosevelt said, quote, Grant, in short, stood for the great elementary virtues, for justice, for freedom, for order, for unyielding resolution, for manliness in its broadest and highest sense. His greatness was not so much greatness of intellect as greatness of character, unquote. In that speech, Roosevelt uh, also quoted a poem by one of, uh, if not the greatest American poets, Walt Whitman, titled Death of General Grant. As one by one withdraw the lofty actors from that great play on history's stagey turn, that lurid partial act of war and peace, of old and new contending, fought out through wrath, fears, dark dismays, and many a long suspense, all past and since, in countless graves receding, mellowing, victors and vanquished, Lincolns and Lees, now thou with them. Man of the mighty days, and equal to the days, thou from the prairies, tangled and many-veined, and hard has been thy part, to admiration has it been enacted. If you would like to contact Portraits of Blue and Gray, you can reach us by email at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Questions and comments are welcome from Yankees and Secesh alike. And remember, we always spell gray the old-fashioned way, G-R-E-Y. Visit the show's webpage at portraitsofblueandgray.podbean.com. If you enjoyed the show and want to contribute financially, click on the Become a Patron badge at the top of the main page to visit our crowdfunding page. Or visit that page directly at patreon.podbeam.com slash blueandgray. All contributors are wholeheartedly appreciated and will be thanked by name in an upcoming episode, unless you ask us not to. Please rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever other app you used to find us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon.
you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.